You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. But So we're in the book of James chapter 5. Um, we're actually going to finish the book of James next weekend. Kind of a bittersweet because um, it's been so practical and so such a blessing for us. But yeah, we're looking at the first six verses um, in, in chapter 5. So let me just read from ja- James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Very interesting, pecu- peculiar me- uh, text here. But it's God's word. <clears throat> This is, what, this is what God's word says. Come now, you rich people. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fanned your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for your whole counsel, Lord God, that we find in in the Bible. It is, Lord God, it is so useful for teaching, for um, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, Lord God, so that the men of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we ask that this morning, Father, your word would not come back void. It never does. We trust in your promises, Father, and we trust that today you'll bring much, you'll bear much fruit in our hearts and in our lives as we gather around this, uh, these six verses in the book of James. We thank you for what you're going to do today. We thank you for this uh, celebration today, Father, that James is, has decided to follow you, Lord God, and he's declaring publicly that he loves you and he wants to follow you through the water of the baptism, Father. We thank you for that, Father. I pray that there will be more, more from this community, Lord Jesus. Would you stir up hearts and and reveal the gospel to many more, Father, that many more will come to know you as their Lord, Savior, and King. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Kind of an interesting passage, isn't it? We said and we promised and we... We're a church that uh, we want to study God's word verse by verse. We're not going to shy away from these six verses, that's for sure. So let's get to work. <laughs> um, let me start by asking you a question. Would you like to be rich? It's like, yeah, true, sweet, yeah. <laughs> Very few people would say, nah, it doesn't, it doesn't interest me. <laughs> One wise guy said, <clears throat> they say it's better to be poor and happy than rich and miserable. But couldn't something be worked out? such as being moderately wealthy and just a little moody. (laughs) It's a wise guy. As Christians, we know that the Bible has many cautions and many warnings, and they're very clear against the dangers of pursuing wealth. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and I don't think I have it up there, but I'll just read it to you. For example, the Apostle Paul warns us and says, 
But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Ooh, that is clear. That's to the point. That is, right? And then he goes on and and says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's, That's quite a warning, right? But most of us read that and we, and we think, man, I could, ha- I could handle being rich, right? I'm kind of the exception to the rule, or at least I like to try and see what happens if I, you know, if I get a f- bunch of millions you know, in my account. Because it really seems like the more money we have, the better and easier life will be, right? And from one perspective, yeah, that makes sense. That's true. I mean, just imagine the good that I can do with a bunch of millions, Right? You know, I could, I could help a lot of poor people. I could pay my parents' house off. I could help my cousin who needs that medical, you know, care, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that we forget, we often forget that wealth can create a lot of problems as well. I mean, we just read about that, that you know, clear warning from, from Apostle Paul. Have you heard of the story by the famous writer, John Steinbeck? And it is called The Pearl. The Pearl. Anyone heard the story of The Pearl? It's the story of a poor pearl diver who dreams of finding, you know, the perfect pearl. And one day he actually finds it. The rest of the story unfolds how his once peaceful life turns into a growing nightmare because now he's rich and now he's got some treasure, right? As everyone else desperately tries to take his treasure from him. And that's exactly what it feels like. When you want to get rich and we pursue getting wealthy and we get there, it's a growing nightmare. That's what people say. Now, what we're seeing here in these six verses in chapter five is maybe a different James. And and one, one that kind of lets loose a little bit. He did say some harsh stuff in the prior chapter, right? Uh, Like you adulterous people. Remember that? I was like, ooh, James. In chapter four, right? He sounds a lot like an Old Testament prophet here in these six, six verses. I mean, thundering against the ungodly rich who oppress the poor all the time. What's interesting about these six verses, our passage for today, is that the words that are used are not necessarily a call to repentance. It's not like, guys, guys, don't manage you know, your money like the world does. Come on, cut it out. Repent, learn to manage your wealth and your money, you know, in a way that honors God. Don't don't, repent, come back, come back to God, right? He doesn't do that. It sounds more like a judgment. He's pronouncing judgment and that's it, right? Or like wrath to come. He's so sure about like, no, 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 you guys are doomed, (laughs) which is very interesting. So sure, there may have been professing Christians in the churches that James is writing to, who are guilty of the sins he confronts here in these six verses. But what's interesting to note is that his main target was the ungodly rich outside of the church. Very interesting to know that. And I think that this is pretty evident, both by his prediction of judgment to come, which tells us it's not for the church. Because the church is not judged in that way. We're judged in Christ, right? Jesus took our judgment, right? The way we're going to be judged as a church, we're going to be judged in terms of rewards, right? But here he's talking about a totally different judgment, condemnation. And also not only that, by his shift in verse 7, which we're going to look at next week, when he addresses those in the church as brethren, 
He doesn't say any of that in these six verses. He just, boom, he just condemns him. Now, let me ask you this question. Why would James spend six verses denouncing and judging and accusing those that are outside of the church who will probably never read this letter? Why would he do that? And I think the answer is, you know, it's kind of similar to when the Old Testament prophets they, uh, they pronounce judgment and woes on Israel's pagan enemies. Kind of the same idea here. And I'll give you an example, Isaiah 13, 19. And there, there are many passages that, that talk about this. So essentially, these warnings serve two main purposes. First, they should encourage us, the church, who know God. They should encourage us to, to be faithful, right? That's one, one, one of them. Just to hang in there because the end is near and ultimate justice is coming, knowing that in due time, God will judge the wicked. So that's the first purpose, right? Guys, just hang in there. Judgment is coming. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. And then second, it should warn us. <clears throat> it should give us something to think about. It should alarm us not to fall into the same kind of sins, not to fall into the same kind of trap that, that will bring judgment on the wicked, right? So two main purposes here. Now, thinking of the context of James' primary audience, and even in our case, it is very easy when you're poor and oppressed to think, man, if I can only get rich, that's going to solve a lot of my problems. No more headaches, no more, you know, no more stress. I will no longer have to deal with these problems and paying bills and all that, right? So we can easily be tempted to pursue wealth, making the mistake in thinking that happiness lies in getting rich and wealthy, or having more. So this is the message that I believe James is trying to convey to the church. Again, he's addressing these six verses to the ungodly, you know, ungodly rich, but he's got a message for us as well. We got to read between the lines. And what the message that he's trying to convey to the church and ultimately to us today, ready for this? James is saying this, and this is kind of the big idea, which I think encompasses the whole, the whole message today. And, and, and it goes something like this. Because wealth can be a dangerous trap, we should be careful to not use it in an ungodly way, but rather to be faithful. I'll read that again. Because wealth can be a dangerous trap, we should be careful not to use it in an ungodly way, but rather to be faithful. And as we navigate through these six verses, James makes three main points. We're going to have three main points for today, and then we're going to close. And the first main point he makes is this. Wealth can be a dangerous trap that leads people to eternal destruction. So this is the first point I think that he makes. Now, before we get into the text, let me just set it up a little bit. It's probably a good spot to say that the Bible does not teach that money itself is evil. It doesn't do that. Right, but rather it is extremely dangerous. Money is extremely dangerous when it falls into the hands of those who are prone to sin, right? To use it sinfully. Have you ever wondered, I have many times, why you're not sitting on $10 million right now? I don't know, just asking. I mean, I'm sure many reasons, but I'm gonna give you one. Many reasons why we're not rich. <laughs> it's probably because you can't take it, <clears throat> and I can't take it. Probably because you can't manage it in a way that honors God. It's probably because wealth would lead us into messing up everything in our life. And God is too loving to allow us to get rich. That could be just one reason out of many. But just to kind of give us a bit of perspective here. Now, Jesus calls it unrighteous mammon in Luke 16, 9, 11. Because those who get their hands on it 
often use it in a, in a, sinful, in a sinful way. Now, money is like a, <clears throat> like a loaded gun. It can be extremely useful in certain situations. You can defend yourself, but you've got to use it carefully, right? I mean, you may hurt others and you may hurt yourself, as well, or to use even another analogy, money is like fire used properly and under control. I mean, fire is a helpful thing, is a helpful tool, isn't it? But if it's used carelessly or, or with evil intent, it can become a powerful force that can destroy your house and your neighbor's house and your life. Now, when combined <clears throat> with the fallen, greedy, selfish human heart, money can quickly corrupt. It can quickly corrupt, and we see that so often. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 to 24, you know, after the rich young ruler walked away from this, the amazing you know, offer of salvation, I mean, the guy approaches Jesus and he asks, hey, what, what should I do to, to you know, inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, sell everything. Ah, the Lord, and he walks away. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this is hard for a rich man. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are pretty shocked at that. And then they, they, they say in verse 25, well, then Jesus, who can be saved? And then Jesus replies in verse 26, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That a lot of times is taken out of the context, Right. But in other words, this is what Jesus is saying. It takes nothing less, nothing less than the power of God to save us from the dangers of greed and selfishness that are bound up with wealth and riches. That's what he's saying. It only takes the power of God. Only the power of God can cure us of that selfishness and greed that we have in our hearts. Now, when it comes to this first main point that we're making now, namely that wealth can be a dangerous trap that can lead us, you know, lead people to eternal destruction. James shows us, <clears throat> I believe, a few ways that wealth can become a trap. It can, I think he gives us a couple of ways, at least a couple of ways that I want to mention, how, you know, wealth can become, you know, a trap leading us to spiritual destruction. And the first thing that I think he says is this, to be rich without God, to be rich without God is to be short-sighted in light of eternity. To be rich without God is to be short-sighted in light of eternity. Uh, James' readers, who were mostly poor and oppressed, they were probably thinking, why be righteous? Why even, you know, why go through the suffering? Why follow God if all, if all it gets us is oppression and stress and, and headaches? Right? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe not in regards to money, but other things. Why not pursue wealth if it gains us some comfort? Sure, sign me up. James' answer is very clear, I think. And he says, because judgment is ahead and it's just around the corner. So James begins with, and let's just read verses one to three again. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Boom, right from the get-go. Your riches have run and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. James is forcefully <clears throat> making the point that wealth is temporary. It's just for here and now. It's just today. You're only going to enjoy that nice car for a little bit. 
Because that judgment, because judgment and eternity are just around the corner. And that's the the big point that he's trying to make here. So what he's saying is to pursue wealth, to pursue money, to the neglect of pursuing God, or to trust in wealth as the solution to your deepest needs is just being short-sighted and just dumb. That's what it is. Your perspective is very small if that's the case, and you are just blinded to the full picture. You're blinded to the truth. You just do not see the full picture. That's what he's saying. So again, to be rich without God is to be short-sighted in light of eternity. Another way that wealth can become a trap that I think he kind of mentions that leads to spiritual destruction would be something like this. To to be rich without God gives temporary comfort and ease, but long-term misery. Kind of the same thing as the first one that I said. Now, the point that James is making here is that the ungodly rich make the mistake of thinking that they are relieving themselves and their families from hardship and suffering and, 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 and problems through their wealth and possessions. And I think most rich people think that, right? But James says that they are storing up misery and hardship for the final judgment. The very thing that they're trusting in for comfort now, ironically, will result in their final ruin. Hmm. We've never made that mistake, right? To trust in something or someone, elevating them in the place of God in our life. Thinking that they provide comfort and ease and satisfaction, right? We've never made that problem. I think we do that many times. Again, not only with finances, but with people too, and objects and things. We trust in our careers, and we trust in our education, and we, in, in our bank accounts, and our savings, and we fail to realize that God is ultimately in control. He is. That, that He has the last word. We fail to realize that all of our stuff is just temporary. We may not have it tomorrow. But we treat them as if they're everything to us. And that's the problem. And we just can't live without them. Or at least that's how it looks from the outside. <clears throat> the Bible commends us to provide the necessities of life, right? It does. We ought to be responsible to provide the necessities of life for our families and ourselves. We see this in 1 Timothy 5.8. There's nothing wrong with living comfortably. And thank God that we get to do that here in America. Thank God. The reality is that we can do much more to serve the Lord, much more good when life is not a constant struggle just to survive, right? We don't have to work 24 out of 24 for a loaf of bread. No, we can get a lot more out of a, ways, a day's wages, right? I mean, modern labor savings conveniences, saving conveniences such as washing machines and, I don't know, dishwashers and lawnmowers and even cars, Help free up time for family and ministry that would otherwise be spent working. Thank God for that. Thank God that we live in America. But the point is that these things become a problem when they begin to control us instead of us using them and controlling them. A computer is a useful tool, isn't it? But it can also become a controlling master. I mean, a lot of us waste our time on on our computers and phones and gadgets. We're there all the time, neglecting time with God, neglecting time with family, and, and time serving God. And James is warning us and says that it is very easy in the Western context, in the 21st century Western context, to enjoy the comforts of life without God. And if we fall into that, these those comforts become a trap and a snare, and that's a problem. 
<clears throat> as we said earlier, James is not addressing these judgments to the churches he's writing to, to the Christian you know, brothers and sisters that, are, that are, were abroad, but he does so to the ungodly rich. But we would totally miss the point, I think, if we fail to pay attention to the fact that he provides an obvious application for us who follow the Lord. And, and what I think he's saying is, and this is our second main point, is this. We should be careful not to use wealth in an ungodly manner like the ungodly rich do. It just kind of comes out of it naturally, right, this point. <clears throat> it's interesting that right from the beginning, James goes after it, you know what I mean? James says that misusing wealth will bring a person into horrible judgment. That's what he starts with. That will make him weep and howl in misery, right? Whoa, whoa. we see that in verse 1. And I think part of the warning to us the church is this, in, in different words. This is what, what, what he's kind of saying. Don't profess that you are a Christian. Don't say that you're walking with God. And when it comes to managing your wealth, you completely deny him. Right? Or a different way. When it comes to your money, you live exactly like the world. Don't do that. Don't say that you're a Christian. You're denying his power. He's kind of, it's kind of the same theme and thread as, you know, yeah, you profess that you're a Christian and you're saved, but there's absolutely no proof of that in your life. Kind of that same, he follows the same thread. In Titus 1.16 warns us, uh, warns us kind of of the same, the same thing. And this, again, not, doesn't have to be just, you know, in our area of finances, but everywhere, every arena in our life. And this is what Titus 1.16 warns us of, kind of the same thing that James is doing today. They profess to know God, but, but, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The truth is that <clears throat> there are far more dangers than James lists here, because he gives us some dangers. He's, he's going to get really practical. But he hits four ungodly uses of wealth. And wouldn't you know what James gets practical again? This is really awesome. And then he mentions hoarding in verses two and three, right? He, super practical. Don't, don't collect junk. And then, and then he says, cheating people out of money, verse four. And then he says, then living in luxury while disregarding the needs of others, verse five. Verse five. And then hurting innocent people for the sake of gain, verse six. He gets very practical. And what's interesting to note is that these seem to move in a progression from the least to the worst. I don't know if you've noticed that. He says, you start with hoarding for yourself. You start with collecting junk, and then you end up hurting innocent people somehow, if unchecked. And this can happen in any, again, arena of life. You expose yourself to a small sin, right? Well, that significant sin, or at least you may think it's insignificant, exposes us to worse sins and, and, and pushes us down that slippery slope. And all of a sudden, we find that the, the, you know, the tumor is terminal, and we're just sinking deep. So the first application point that James provides for us in an indirect way <coughs> is this. We should be careful not to hoard wealth. I, I, I don't know how other way to say it. <laughs> He's just being very clear. We should be careful not to hoard wealth. Again, let, let, let me just read verses 2 and 3. Your riches have run, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will serve as a testimony against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. These rich people that James was addressing, they had a lot, 
that had much stuff that it was rotting in storage. Do we have that problem here in America? <clears throat> How many chains of clothes do you have that you never wear? We, we, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against saving food and all that, and, but maybe some people have stored up food for like years and they never eat it and it just goes bad. I wonder, these are some of the practical things that I'm really, you know, kind of going through as I'm, as I'm preaching this to myself. I mean, what good are 10 changes of clothes if when you go to get something out of the closet is moth-eaten, he says. What good is a bank vault full of jewels if you're afraid to wear them for fear of being robbed? What good is it? As I said, the Bible commands us to provide for our families and our own needs. That's a responsibility that we ought to, you know, take seriously. But it is very clear on the fact that it condemns hoarding our money and possessions. Very clear. When it can be put to use maybe to invest in a ministry or help a neighbor or or help someone, right? Now, I'm not sure where that balance point is for you and your family. I, I will not make that call. Like how much to save, how much to give away, right? I cannot tell you. I can only make that specific all for my family and my life. This is where the wisdom that we talked about in chapter 3 comes in handy. So let's go before God and ask Him. But I will say this. Not, not many of us here in America live on the lean side. No. <laughs> what happens is that oftentimes behind our hoarding, do you know what happens behind this hoarding, collecting junk? It's either the sin of greed or a lack of a trust in God. I don't trust God, so I'm just going to collect some stuff and more stuff. Because who knows what's going to happen in 10 years. It's good to be prudent. It's good to be responsible and provide. But when do we call it hoarding? When do we call it sinful? Are we trusting God? Is there a greed behind our collecting of junk and stuff? We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But the point is this. Don't spend your life collecting junk and stuff that you never use or need. Give it away to someone that can actually use it. I'm sure we all have basements full of stuff that we can give away that no one's really using. Another indirect application point, we're going to move away, we're going to move on, that James gives to us is, well, in verse 4. We're just going to take every verse at a time. We should be careful not to cheat people out of money, he says. Let me, again, just read uh, verse 4 again. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, in which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. Now, James was denouncing wealthy landowners that were cheating their laborers out of their hard-earned wages. Now, we're not exactly sure how they did that, if they were not paying them the full amount promised or, or cheating them on the pretext of that they had not fulfilled their quotas. I, I, don't know, I don't know what, we don't know specifically what went on behind the scenes. But it was common enough, check this out, it was common enough, a common enough problem to be mentioned several times in the Bible, meaning that we do have this problem. In Leviticus 19.13 states, you shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to, check this out, The the wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Just give it away. If you worked, you finished, pay him. Don't cheat him out. The reality is that we have much more than we need here in America. Most people do. 
But oftentimes in that economy, James' economy, day laborers got by on that day's pay. They needed that pay right at the end of the, you know, when they finished work. Because that, that's that's, that's, that was bread for them. That was dinner for them, for them and their kids. Now, not too many of us, as I said, are in the position, well, no, I didn't say this. Not too many of us are in the position of paying wages. I mean, I think a few of us have businesses and, and yeah, we do have to pay wages. But if we are, <clears throat> we should be generous and fair. That, that's the principle. Don't withhold the, no, be generous and fair and pay on time. That's the point here. And if we're not, if we don't pay wages, if we don't have businesses and people working for us, the principle still applies. That it is always wrong to cheat others for our own financial gain. I, I was trying to think of, a, of an example. <laughs> Best I, I, I this, this is the example that I came up with. Selling something that is broken on marketplace. Have you done that? I mean, not fully broken, but you're like, oh, I hope, I hope they bite. I hope they, they don't turn it on twice when they, you know, just once, because that may, you know, right? That is, that's what's what we're talking about. Cheating people for, that you would gain a buck or two or 20 bucks. Is it really worth it? And James condemns that. James condemns that. Let's move on. Another indirect application point that James gives, gives us is, in verse 5, we find it in verse 5. We should be careful not to live in luxury and self-indulgence. And it says, you have lived for pleasure on the earth and lived luxuriously. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What a choice of words. Some commentators say that what James had in mind in verse 5, since he was the younger brother of Jesus, is Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story from Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31. It's a story about a rich man who lived in luxury. This guy lived in luxury while Lazarus, a poor guy, you know, covered with sores, longed to be fed with the crumbs from the rich man's table. That's what the Bible said, says. But what happened is that after death, the roles kind of reversed, <laughs> Right, and, and the rich man was in agony and flames in hell. And Lazarus was living comfortably, the Bible says, in Abraham's bosom. Now, the point of the story was, was that not all rich people go to hell. Not all rich people go to hell. I want to be understood this morning. And that not all poor people go to heaven. Right? We don't have a theology of prosperity or poverty. That's not the gospel. Right? That's not the gospel. The Bible is very clear that there are godly rich people in the Bible. And there are ungodly poor people in the Bible, right? By the way, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Just so we're clear on that. <clears throat> but the moral of the story is that the rich man's selfish indulgence and lack of compassion for the poor, for Lazarus, reflected his godless, selfish focus on life. He was only interested in himself. Ah, me, 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 me. In James' indictment, of fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter from this verse 5, points to the fact that the day of judgment is coming and is coming sooner than you think. And you will not escape it. Just like unreasoning and dumb cows. That's what he's saying, kind of. They just go on fattening themselves every single day, not worrying about what the next is doing. Ah, I don't care. just want to fatten myself up. And what's obvious is that this lifestyle only incurs and earns greater guilt and condemnation. That's what it does. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
I've read somewhere of a well-known Christian entertainer, Christian entertainer, who collects Rolls Royces as his hobby. I'll make you judge where, where we put this, you know. But now apparently he owns a dozen or more. I don't know if you know anything about Rolls Royces, but they're expensive cars. They can go up to like a quarter of a million, I think. I don't know, maybe I'm off, but they're very expensive cars. <laughs> and sure, I realize that luxury is a relative term, and it's easy to judge the extravagant examples and justify ourselves. But what I'm saying is, oh, never mind that. What God is saying through James, we need to examine ourselves honestly, prayerfully, and often so that we don't fall into what James is condemning here. I believe that the Lord Church wants us to live simply. This is the principle, simply, simply, and manage our resources in light of his eternal purposes. That's our response. That's our focus, to live simply and manage our resources in light of his eternal purposes. And I think the last, the last application point that James gives us is in verse 6. So let's move on to verse 6. <clears throat> and he says, and this is the application point, we should be careful not to hurt innocent people for the sake of our profit. And he says in verse 6, we have condemned and put to death the righteous person. He offers you no resistance. Some commentators think that James is actually speaking of literal murder here. Others say that if he's speaking you know, figuratively or looking at the practical outcome of the rich cheating the poor out of their wages and therefore their daily bread. It's interesting to note that the word condemned here, very interesting, points to the use of the legal system to take advantage of the poor. And that, and that could have been done by bribing judges or hiring really expensive and powerful lawyers. That never happens today, right? The idea is that the rich were wrongfully taking land and houses from the poor or forcing them into slavery. That's what they were doing. And then when they were conf confronted, they said, no, 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 it's all legal. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break the law. It's all legal. And the idea here is that James is trying to bring across is that what is technically legal is not always moral or biblical. That's the point. I mean, did you hear that, church? Just because the legal system and the government gives us the right to do something, it doesn't have to be right in the eyes of God. That's the principle here. Even one of our values is scripture, our highest authority. Not the government, not the legal system, not anything else, right? But God's word. Now, for most of us, we may never kill someone for the sake of our own financial gain. But the point is that we should be careful never to hurt others just so we can get ahead financially, just so we can make a buck. Think of others' interests. Think of what Jesus would do. Have the full picture that Jesus is coming, that this is temporal. This is just, just a moment. Just hang in there. We'll be home soon where we'll have all the riches and all the wealth and all the joy that we can ever think of. So we just talked about the fact that wealth can be a trap and the warnings from, from James that we must be careful not to use it in an ungodly manner. And, and the third point that I like to make now, and it's a short one, which is pretty obvious by now, our responsibility <clears throat> is to be faithful to God in the arena of financial stewardship. This is it. And the big idea is this. You either trust in money that you see now, that you see, you know, in the bank, right? Or in the Lord that you will see one day, one or the other. 
Yeah, we can use money and trust God, or you can trust in money and use God. That that happens a, a lot too. So if you trust in the Lord, then you will be a good steward of the money and possessions that God entrusts us with. And probably, probably the most important reality that most of us forget is that God owns it all. Did you know that every penny that you have is God's? It's God's. Nothing comes from us. We don't don't create anything. It comes from God. Let me just make a side point here. You know, some people will use the excuse of, well, we don't have enough. We don't make enough, so we're not going to tithe to the church. Do you know what this tells me? That first, you don't believe that all that you have is the Lord's. That's what this says. And second, you don't have faith enough to honor God with the first fruits. And I'll just move on. That was a bit of a jab or whatever. Take it as, if the shoe fits, wear it. (laughs) So getting back to the main point here, God owns it all and we must give an account to him of how we, we, we use it. So again, let's just recap the three main points here. We looked at the fact that wealth can be a dangerous trap that leads people to eternal destruction, right? Number two, we, we should be careful not to use wealth in an ungodly manner like the ungodly rich do. And then number three, we just looked at this. Our responsibility is to be faithful stewards to God in the area of our finances. <clears throat> now, let me just close with this. But let's just say that our response to all of this, to this message would be, well, we're not necessarily rich, right? Not necessarily pursuing wealth and riches. I can't really say that I am. I can barely pay my bills, so this message is definitely not for me, Ovi. Thanks. You know, thanks for coming out. Now, here's what we're going to do in closing. Ten minutes. We're going to try to address this attitude that I just described by bringing in thanksgiving. Because that's what we were supposed to, you know, do this week. Or maybe every single day give thanks. And by the way, compared to the rest of the world, because I got to say this, we're all rich here in America. If you don't have to go in the forest and chop down some trees and, and build yourself a house, you're probably rich. If you, don't, if, you, you know, if you heat your house in the winter and cool your house in the summer with a push of a button, you're probably rich. But let's just say that we're not rich because from one perspective, we're not considered rich in the American context. And we're not because we're not sitting on a few million. Maybe you are. Praise God. But do you know what our problem is then? Our problem is James 4.2. Let me just read it again and refresh our memories, what our problem is. James 4.2 says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's our problem. Our problem is the sin of coveting. We can sit here all day long saying, well, the sermon on pursuing being rich and wealthy is not for me because I'll never get there. Sure, but our problem is that we want to be rich so bad. We want to have more so bad. It's the sin of coveting. And the sin of coveting is a desire for something that we do not have, but something that we really want. It's a desire for something God has not provided for us. That's what it is. And here is the connection between coveting and thankfulness. Coveting or wanting something that you don't have, something that God has not provided for you, coveting in all all of its forms, it comes out in many forms, is a fruit of ingratitude. It's the fruit of not being content and satisfied in God. Think about it. You're just not content 
with what God has for you in a particular season, in a particular space. You're not trusting God that he's good. You're not satisfied with God. God is not enough for me in this season because you need that extra thing. I need that extra money and then I'll be fine. You're dreaming about your future and God is not making it happen. Therefore, we're not thankful. Does this hit home? It does for me. Did you know that the level of thankfulness in our hearts reveals the condition and health of our hearts? Did you know that? When Paul describes what our freedom from sexual sin or other kinds of defiling sin looks like, he doesn't point to the absence of temptation. He doesn't do that. You know what he points to? He points to thankfulness. Interesting. Let me just read it to you. Ephesians 5, 3, 4. Apostle Paul says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Huh. If we want to know how healthy our souls and hearts are, church, we should check our levels of gratitude. Because hearts that are content in God, hearts that are satisfied in God are hearts that are the least vulnerable to temptations, particularly covetous temptations. Let me ask, how are you doing with that? How's your heart doing with that in this season? Are you thankful and satisfied in God? Am I? Or are you too satisfied in God to indulge in anything else? But if you're not thankful and satisfied in God, chances are I can only imagine where you're at in your walk with God. I can only imagine where you're at in your managing money and wealth and all that. <clears throat> so what is thankfulness then? Is it forcing yourself to say some nice things? And what is it? To smile all the time? And No, not even close. But here we go. Thankfulness is what we experience when we perceive, when we realize, when we identify, when we understand that what we have received from God is an undeserved gift by God's grace, that's where it stems from. And let me tell you, we have a wealth of riches in Jesus Christ. But what are we talking about specifically? Well, thank you for asking. Thankfulness is something that happens in our hearts when we start understanding the gospel. That's where it starts. I'm not talking about this positive attitude that the world kind of uses. Oh, they just smile and what? No, no. I'm talking about the real kind of thanksgiving that the Bible talks about. The reality is that thankful people understand the gospel and people that understand the gospel are inevitably thankful. Therefore, they will not covet. Therefore, they won't desire to get wealthy and rich because they know that in Christ, they have the ultimate treasure. Is that us, church? So when you realize and understand that Jesus is your savior, when you realize and understand that Jesus is your king and Lord and your shepherd, the reaction that happens in our hearts is one that we read about in Psalm 23. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want more money. I shall not want more wealth unless God chooses to give it to me. Thank God if he, if he does that because I'm fully satisfied and content in God. The way I am, he knows. He's sovereign and loving. What is the gospel anyways? We've been talking about the gospel, right? I'll try to put it in a long sentence here. 
The gospel is the incredibly mind-blowing news, because that's what gospel is, good news, evangelion. It's the incredibly mind-blowing news that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, died for our sins to offer us forgiveness and rose from the dead to offer us a new life in him. And Jesus is eternally triumphant over all of his enemies and our enemies, sin, death, and Satan, so that there's now no condemnation for those who believe and who accept this incredible gift of life, but only everlasting joy, living the new life that he provides. That's kind of the gospel. So here's what I think we should do. Let's start cultivating thankfulness, Summit Church, and let's encourage each other to do the same. Not the worldly kind, but the gospel-centered kind. So how do we actually do this? How do we get to have a spirit or an attitude of thanksgiving so we don't covet wealth and money and extra things? How do we do that? I don't think there's a four easy step to a grateful heart. Maybe some people will write a book about that. But this is where we should start. This is where the Bible wants us to start. We begin, church, to train our hearts We begin to train our spiritual eyes to look for God's grace in the gospel. And we do that on a daily basis. That's the best I've got. That's it right there. And we start with our forgiveness because we know we're forgiven. Just ponder on that when you wake up. Lord, I thank you that I'm forgiven. And And then start with the fact that in Christ, we can be sure that we belong to God. Start with the fact that, you know, that we have an eternal inheritance in him. We start with the fact that we have a new life in him, a new purpose, new meaning, new taste buds, new desires, new family, right? And this looking must become a daily thing, a habitual thing. So practically, it needs to start with being in God's word first, because that's where we get acquainted with the gospel. You can't get acquainted with the gospel and not read the Bible and not be in God's word. Please don't look for experiences first. Don't start with experiences first. They will come. Start with being in God's word. That's our foundation. And then prayer, because prayer aligns our hearts to God's heart. And as we study God's word and understand God's heart, then we pray so that God aligns our hearts to his. And then every chance you get, church, and for those that are listening now through the podcast, every chance you get getting with God's people, because a lot happens when God's people get together. It is very difficult when you just watch online and hear and you're not with God's people. <clears throat> and I guarantee you that by the help of the Holy Spirit, because we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own church. We get incrementally better as the days become weeks and the weeks become months and the months become years, they become more and more a part of who we are, right? But it is so worth the effort. This is again, a daily thing, a lifestyle of training our hearts and spiritual eyes to look for God's grace in the gospel so that our faith will rise and mature and increase. James gets it. James gets the gospel. That's why he's declaring publicly today that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus forgave his sins. That Jesus rose from the dead so that he could live a new life in Christ now. That's what baptism is. A public declaration that the gospel has grabbed a hold of his heart and our hearts. And now... The only natural response when you understand the gospel, when you realize you're a sinner and he's the only solution, why wouldn't I want to follow Jesus? 
Why wouldn't I want to just give my life to him? Well, I want to follow him. And that's just a natural response to when you hear the good news of the gospel. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.